This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with Chris Murphy. Hello. And David Canfield. Hello. A threefer. It's a rare treat on these interview episodes. Well, um, it's going to be a lot more now. We got strikes over. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, so, Chris, we're so happy to have you back on the show, as always. And this time, you got to have what I think is a very long in the works conversation with Jeffrey Wright about American fiction, because you wrote the first look feature on it for us over the summer when the strike had already begun. So you've had questions for him for literal months, and you finally got to ask him. Absolutely. I've been sitting on this for months and months. <laughs> um, yeah, it was really wonderful to chat with Jeffrey. I absolutely adore the movie. And we talked about representations of Black men in media and not wanting to be pigeonholed as an actor and what it was like for Jeffrey Wright, such a tremendous actor, to work with a first-time director in Court Jefferson. Yeah. Well, and when you saw this movie, you saw it before any of us did, and you like you were like, I really loved it. I really want to see how it goes. And then I, when I saw it at Toronto, I think I got in touch with you. I was like, it went great. Like, has it been gratifying to know that everyone was right there with you? <laughs> I don't want to say that I am a trendsetter in, <laughs> in being able to figure out that this movie was going to be a big hit. But it is very cool that, you know, you see a little movie on your laptop and then you're like, well, I think this is going to be great. And then people really picking up what you put down and what you saw a lot of potential in. So yeah, it's been a little gratifying. I'll say it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's okay. It's so goes as goes Chris Murphy, so goes the nation. I think we've all known that all along. <laughs> um, well, let's hear more about all of that in your conversation with the star of American fiction, Jeffrey Wright. This is so cool. I'm so thrilled uh, to be talking to you, Jeffrey. Thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, I've been such a big fan of you know your work for as long as I can remember, and this is just sort of surreal right now. Well, you're that means you're either very young or you're saying I'm very old. <laughs> no, I, that is not what I meant. I just uh, your storied <laughs> career has been a big part of my life. Um, well, I, I mean to. Yeah, jump to the most recent film, American Fiction, which, because of the strike, I actually did a whole big first look story for Vanity Fair and talked to Court Jefferson about it, but I wasn't able to talk to you about it. So I've been wanting to talk to you about this movie since the middle of July. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> well here we are. Yes, finally, here we are. Um, I was uh, such uh, a deep uh, and immediate fan of American fiction. It's unlike any movie I've ever seen, and it hits on parts of the Black experience that I've experienced and that I have felt immediately represented and seen by that you don't normally see on screen. So I, I would love to know 
How did you get involved with the project? What did you think when the script rolled across your desk? Were you familiar with the source material, um, Erasure by Percival Everett? Yeah, how did you get involved? Yeah, I hadn't read the book. Uh, I read the, the script first. And in fact, I read the book um, later, mm. uh, um, late in the process. And I was, I was, I was drawn to the the words on the page, and that's usually what kind of catches me uh, first. And I, you know, it was clear that Cord was a sharp thinker and a great writer. He hadn't directed before, but um, it was clear from the script that he knew his way around story. And I think, though, that what drew me in more so than kind of this sharp satire and social commentary was the story of this man and his relationship to family and to love. That for me was the core. Um, the social commentary is wonderful and it provides you know, a lot of insight and also dynamics to the film. But I tend to think of it as as kind of the the fat on the steak. <laughs> the meat is the story of the family and the story of this man under the pressures of family and the the the, the sacrifices that he makes relative to his personal life and his professional life on behalf of his responsibilities to family. You know, the, 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 the fat and the steak is the tasty bit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, but, but the meat, um, yeah. Uh, the meat of the thing, you know, the core of the thing is that. And, and I think in some ways that it's the most subversive aspect of the mm. film as well, wow. because, because it runs counter to the tropes and stereotypes that you know we're you know we're kind of having a laugh at it's those stories that we don't see it's those lives those narratives that we very often don't have access to in fact in my career um i don't recall another film that i've done with such a complex nuanced portrait of a family i've never been asked to play that and i was kind of a, i was you know recognizing that as we were doing it it's like wow i have I've never gotten I've never gotten to play these notes before. Wow. But at the same time, it was so deeply personal for me. Um and and I think this film and you know this this character is more personal for me than any other role that I've done. Um you know, maybe aside from Basquiat. Hmm. Wow. I mean that you really hit the nail on the head in terms of the way the film sort of takes this sort of uh, absurd and sort of satirical concept of, you know, what it means to be a black writer and what, what it means to feel pigeonholed in that way and and what happens when that idea gets turned on its head and marries it with like a very deeply raw and emotionally um, satisfying family drama with such an amazing ensemble. I mean, your scenes with Sterling K. Brown and Tracy Ellis Ross and Leslie Uggams, can you talk a little bit about working within the ensemble and sort of forging these relationships um, on screen. They were so finely tuned. I was so pleased and, and I have to say somewhat surprised when I was told who, uh, you know, who else was 
was being considered for the film and who had accepted. I mean, Cord <laughs> was like, okay, so Tracy Ellis Ross wants to play your sister. I'm like, really? Wow. Okay, cool. Sterling K. K. Brown is like, you know, he's not really doing it, but he wants to do this. He wants to do this film, tell the story and, and play your brother. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, because I respect them so much. And, and I, and I was, you know, I was pleasantly, surprised that they wanted to come, you know, come in and jump into this and play with me. And and Leslie Uggams, mm. I've been an ad- admirer of, you know, for many, many years. And I told her, so I told her on the last day, because it would have been awkward <laughs> because of course she's playing my mother. Yeah. I told her, I told her that I had had an early schoolboy crush on her. <laughs> uh, I mean, wow. she, she's, she's just an absolute legend. And, and then also Myra Lucretia Taylor, who's, mm-hmm. who's uh, the energy that she brings to this family dynamic was so on point. And so in answer to your question, what happened when we got together, I guess the first family scene was really that scene where, you know, Monk, you know, is, comes home and, and, and you know, mother is there and, and, and Lorraine played by Myra is there and Tracy. And that was like kind of the first time that, you know, we see the family together absent Sterling in, you know, their family you know, their child in Monk's childhood home. Mm-hmm. And from, you know, we didn't rehearse a lot for this. We got together, we, you know, we read a bit, but from the first beat, from the first moment, as we walk in the door, Myra like opens her mouth and I immediately felt that we were there. They, these actors, each of them, not just the family, but everyone in this film, John Ortiz and Issa Rae and and in and, and the, the day players here and there just were so finely tuned to, you know, their part of the symphony. And when we got together, it just flowed. Oh, wow. Oh, absolutely. That's so lovely to hear. I'll say one thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, please, please. Tracy can be a problem. <laughs> how so? <laughs> I don't know how many takes I ruined simply because I could not stop laughing. <laughs> Tracy is so unbelievably funny, but at the same time, she's so unpredictable. Mm. <laughs> so like kind of in the moment and grounded and genuine and then like, and then just wildly like ironic and crazy. And so it's a, it was said she, I mean, if I would hope if I, I was an only child, but if I had had a sister, I, 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 I would hope she would have been like uh, like Tracy. Tracy. Oh, my gosh. From Girlfriends to Blackest to American Fiction. She knows, but she can, yeah. <laughs> she can be funny. She knows it. Um, wow. That's, I mean, that's so lovely to hear. Um, I do really, we got to talk about, as you called it, sort of like the fat on the steak, right? And delicious part in terms of the satire and the delineation between Monk and Stagar Lee. And I've got to say, like, as, as a Black male writer, I've, hundred percent understood and saw myself in Monk's frustrations with being like, okay, yeah, I'm a writer. I'm I'm more than that, right? I'm not just my identity markers. I'm not just this in this box. I mean, the scene with you or Monk rather taking his book and moving it out of the African American fiction to just the fiction section. Um, can you talk a little bit about coming at this as a you know a black man who's you know played many many roles in Hollywood and on stage and whatnot did you sort of identify with that at all was that how did yeah how did you sort of um uh, identify with monk from a personal level well well I I mean I identify with monk 
uh, on a personal level in terms of, you know, this, this journey he is at this stage in his life. Uh, mm-hmm. That was deeply personal for me. Um, we'll get to the social commentary sec, but the, the deeply personal stuff for me was the, you know, was his relationship with his mother, you know, having to be caretaker of the mm-hmm. one who was once his caretaker and, you know, the kind of, you know, uh, uh, void that, you know, that emerges in the middle of his family and that he asked with, with filling. I mean, I guess, you know, my, my mom passed away uh, uh, not too long before this script came to me. I'm sorry and to hear so, that. Well, thank you. And so, uh, you know, she was, she was, a you know, she was the center, you know, the absolute center of our family and she was the glue. And then all of a sudden she wasn't there and, and then you know all eyes turned to me and mm. and and as well you know i had been had to you know look after her and my mm-hmm. my aunt or older sister and at the same time my kids you know so i was experiencing those what they call the sandwich years in my ah. case it seemed to be like a 6 foot long subway sandwich oh god yeah you know, years um and so that you know that's what was what was what was kind of deeply resonant for me about this, uh, about Monk's journey and, and the sacrifices that he's, you know, asked, asked to make as a result of, you know, turning his, his vision toward family and responsibility. As far as his predicament, which emerges out of frustration, professional frustration, creative frustration, Mm -hmm. creative frustration with, you know, with the world, uh, how the world around him perceives him and perceives other cultural output but it's also born of necessity because he has these responsibilities that, mm-hmm. you know, to, he has the responsibility of caring for his mother. But in terms of uh, his frustrations at these perceptions, I have at times, I guess, been frustrated, but I think as well, I have been fortunate enough at times to figure out ways to circumnavigate. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> because one of the things that I have, if there's anything that I've done during the course of my career, I've tried to maintain some flexibility and I've tried to not too often retrace old steps. Um, I've stayed very busy over many decades and I've rarely kind of, re, you know, gone back to, you know, the same, you know, type of, uh, of, of work. And I've found a type of strength, I think, and flexibility, which mm. has served me. But it's also the way uh, I like to work. I, I don't, I like, I don't, you know, I don't like to play the same type of character and the same type of story, you know, uh, continually. I like, you know, I like, you know, I admired actors who, like Dustin Hoffman, you know, yeah. like Peter Sellers, who would kind of, you know, shapeshift and 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 enjoyed that aspect of what we do. And, you know, they came out of the theater as I came out of the theater. And so it, that was, you know, so it's kept me uh, busy because, you know, people don't very often, unlike with this story, with this film, people don't very often go out looking for a Jeffrey Wright type, you know. Uh, I don't know, you know, there's, there's, there's not a lot of films that are written for (laughs) a, you know, Jeffrey Wright type. (laughs) So I have to kind of, you know, I have to sometimes do a little morphing. Yeah. Uh, With this role, 
this is probably this is probably more similar to who I am than any other role <laughs> that I have ever played. Wow! It, it didn't require um, you know a lot of alterations. It really just required more emerging, uh, you know, and a kind of synthesis of the you know the internal the mm. internal things. I think that's so interesting. I love that this idea that you've, you know, I mean, it takes talent to avoid being pigeonholed, you know, in any sphere, but especially as an actor, right? And you've, you've built a career on this. And then, as you're saying this, you're totally right. I can see how Monk would be something, you know, that is in your wheelhouse and, you know, a Jeffrey Wright type. I, that's uh, such a great <laughs> way of putting it. But then you have to play Monk, but you're also, you have to play Stag R. Lee, which is yeah. a completely different type of character. And you imbue that with so much humor and like also grace. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the flip side of Monk, the Stag R. Lee of it all, the my pathology of it all? Sure. Well, the one thing that I wanted to be kind of clear about was that Monk wasn't necessarily, or rather, Monk isn't necessarily the best actor, <laughs> yeah. which, which yeah. makes it all the more ridiculous and awkward uh, for him. But Stagar Lee is 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 this character, you know that you know he uh, that he that he creates that kind of comes back around to recreate him and to try mm. and to swallow <laughs> him uh yeah. in some ways but that was good good fun and and one of the aspects of it was because some at times you know, this it's stagger lee uh having a you know having phone conversation with someone else i quite enjoyed kind of playing this character but but not quite playing it, playing it more like kind of with the voice, but at the same time with a with a kind of dis you know disdain in the body, yeah, uh, which a was, sort of separation, is, yeah, a little bit of a which is monk, um, mm -hmm. but but um, I, I mean I think Stagar Lee is that that boogeyman that you know that phantom uh, threat that some people see walking down the street when they see. Uh, a black man approaching them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, you know he's he's uh, he's what appears to uh, into you know in, in to certain eyes as uh, when know. they turn on Fox News, this is what they think. You know, well, this is exactly right. I mean, this is this is a character that that allows people to reject the diversity within the black community and experience and, and, you know, uh, allows them not to understand that we are not monolithic and that there, mm -hmm. there is no one authentic, uh, black existence. But at the same time, also, I think that it's not, you know, to be fair, it's not just uh, a phenomenon that uh, occurs outside of the black community. I think mm -hmm. we also internalize too often the stereotype we internalize and and kind of elevate the you know this single kind of fugitive frustrated mm -hmm. uh, side of ourselves uh this you know that that we we embrace the limitations at yeah. times you know? i mean it's so interesting to make that point because the film directly confronts that idea with Issa Rae's character and you're, you know, that I was, she is such, so fantastic in the film. I was laughing out loud in the first scene where she gives a reading from her book, you know, yeah. we, we lives in the ghetto and then like, and then, but we have a really important and really, frankly, emotionally moving and intellectually stimulating conversation at the end between Monk and Issa Rae's character that confronts this idea of, you know, that 
there's no issue with Stagger, you know, there's that confronts the how black people are not a monolith. And there are so many stories to tell. And who's to say one is more valid than the other? I would I would love to just talk a little bit about that. Right. With her in that scene. Yeah. Oh, God, that was wonderful. And and she uh, was so pleased as well to hear that Issa had agreed to to come on board. And again, I was like, wow, really? Okay, cool. (laughs) But I think she brings a she brings um, uh, an authenticity and a a validity to that role that was so necessary. Uh Um, And, you know, she also she, you know, she was in on the joke, too. I mean, she um, she she got this. I think we were, you know, we we were all, you know, drawn to this the series of arguments that are made in this film, because mm-hmm. I think there is ambiguity. We're not answering questions here. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're raising questions and asking the audience to raise questions, but working with her was just, just perfect. And, and, and I, I say this often that when you're working opposite of wonderful actors, it's just easy. That's the best way to put it, because they give you so much information, they give you so much color, they give you, um, you know, so much to respond to and to react to, and and the dialogue just becomes that richer because you know because there's you know there's so much to respond to. So, Lisa was wonderful, um, and yeah, that is, it is a moment too for Monk in the film, in which you know there's a hand put to his face mm-hmm. and, 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 and at the end of the conversation, we're not quite sure who is right. Yeah. Or if there is, um, you know, a right side of the answer. And we certainly question, I think Monk's intent. And I think he questions himself to an extent, Mm. It is a bit of a reckoning for him, and Issa was the, was the you know the perfect uh, person to uh, to bring that reckoning into being. Yeah, uh, truly, and I love what you said. It puts a hand in his face, and yeah, there is maybe not. There's definitely not an easy answer, and there might not be a right answer to these really valid, really important questions that we don't see asked that often in cinema. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You just mentioned, um, you know, working with great actors, you know, it makes everything so easy. Uh, American Fiction is not the only film that you made this year or that came out this year. You're also in, and speaking of incredible ensembles, you're Adam Clayton Powell Jr. in Rustin, which just came out on Netflix. Another film that I love that I did a whole story on that I could not talk to you about <laughs> because of the strike. Um, can you talk a little bit about being a part of that Rustin ensemble and playing, you know, a black icon in Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who, in this context, is sort of the antagonist of the film. Yeah, he's he's a bit of a villain in this bit film. Bit of a villain in here, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he, in life, was such a, an interesting and big character. Mm. And I have been aware of him for, you know, for, for as long as I could remember. Um, you know, of course, he's the first elected congressman from the North, kind of mm-hmm. post-Reconstruction, uh, who was a black man. He was elected in, in 1941, and he served <laughs> until the early 70s. Yeah. Uh, and he, he, but he was not just, you know, a politician. He was really iconic. He was a real kind of community uh, icon uh, in Harlem. I think his father had founded Ebenezer. Uh, uh, I think Abbas- you're right. Uh, uh, yeah. Baptist church. Baptist church. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he is, he's a, he's a politician, but also a massive cultural figure. And so I was aware of him because he was heroic in my household. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but as well, he was part political uh, shaman, part political showman too. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of those massive ego, but massively talented and effective, but he was complicated. And, yeah. but I, 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 as I mentioned, my, you know, everything comes back to my mom. I did these films that kind of intellectually, but I was, uh, at, at her house in, in DC and I was taking care of some affairs down there. This is, uh, you know, sometime after she had passed it, mm-hmm. uh, a year, year, year and a half or so, or about however long it was. And, and a cousin of mine had gone down into the basement to clear some stuff out and brought, you know, these boxes and various things up into the living room. And I, he wasn't there, but I was there by myself. I walked in, I opened the door and my mom had an amazing book collection, record collection and all, you know, she had all of this wonderful stuff. Some of my best albums are, you know, albums mm. that I took from my mom, like Miles <laughs> Davis, oh, Live wow. Evil, which is like one of my favorite albums of all day. It's like, it's my, took it from my mom, handed <laughs> off to college. But anyway, I walk in the door I, and and I see all this stuff in the living room and there's a box there with albums and the album staring at me as I walk in was Adam Clayton Powell's Keep the Faith Baby. It was a collection mm. of speeches. Speeches. I, said, I hadn't decided to do the movie because I was trying to, you know, turn my schedule around and make it happen. Of course, George Wolf, who is like, you know, everything to me, I've worked with, I don't know how many times. And he's like, you know, uh, he's godfather to my kids. He is my, <laughs> at the center of my heart. So mm. I, called, I called George and I said, 
I said, George, you know, I said, you know, I just walked into my mom's house and the first thing I saw was Adam Clayton Powell's face on this collection of his speeches. And he said, he said, yes, Jeffrey, that's your mother telling you to do my movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's such a good impersonation of him too. (laughs) Uh, So, so so that was, um, you know, I said, yes, I guess so. I guess I'm in. Uh, I have to be. But he, um, but, but as well, I mean, working opposite Coleman uh, in this was, was again, um, like with, you know, all, you know, wonderful actors was just great fun, but also that entire room, you know, there was, you know, Glenn Turman and, mm-hmm. you know, and, Andre McDonald, oh, yeah. I mean, it was Rope, just you know, like, we just, CCH it, Pounder, it just yeah, goes and, on and on. It just, and it was a lot of us in, you know, in that, you know, the, the kind of, you know, super villainous from a pow perspective scene and they were you know they was just a, they was just it was just wonderful it was just a, a wonderful long smoke filled day but i know how much george respects uh adores and feels caretaker of in terms of storytelling whether on stage or on screen of these great men and women who were the source for so many of us, of our freedoms, and Bayard Rustin is one of those, yeah. and and an unsung one of those, uh, but someone that we need to understand was there mm-hmm. on the barricade, so that we could be here now. And yeah, I'm just I'm just glad that I could I could you know play my little villainous role, uh, however, wow. <laughs> you know, uh, in in telling that in telling that that part of his story. Wow. I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you, I, I spoke with George uh, about the movie and I'm a huge theater nerd and we, you know, we could go down to the Angels in America path, but I will say that speaking to George, he was raving obviously about working with you and he says he's worked with you more than any person ever because you're such a smart actor and he told a little story on the Reston set about how um, you were late to the shoot because you were so uh, specific about Adam Clayton Powell Jr. He had these two bumps on his face and yeah. I think <laughs> he was like, and Jeffrey was like, we, I, we have to get those absolutely right because I have to play him to his entirety. And he was like, that was such a, such a mark of a, the exact type of actor that I always want to work with, somebody with that attention to detail. Well, yeah, Powell had these two moles, like, you know, in his cheek, you know, so if you want to play Powell, let's play Powell. Come on, you know? <laughs> Oh my gosh. I love that. And I, so sort of to circle back, I mean, you've, as you said, you've worked with George so much over the course of your career. And then with American Fiction, you're working with Cord Jefferson, who's a completely untested director who had never directed before. What was it like to sort of work with a fresh face? I mean, I will say Cord, when we spoke about this film, he said, directing you was like uh, trying to tell Michael Jordan how to shoot a jump shot. So (laughs) that's how he felt. But how did you feel? Well... Hmm, that's very kind of him. Uh, Cord had what directors need, and that is a clarity of vision. Mm. I mean, he had such a specific understanding of this story and why he wanted to tell it and how to tell it. And so with that information, um, that's all I ask. I just ask you know, give me as much information as you possibly can, Mr. D- or Mrs. Director. Just, I just need, <laughs> what do what do you want? Why do you not want that? You want mm. this? Explain to me why. Okay. And let's go. And then the ability to communicate that, not just to actors, but to everyone on set 
is the responsibility of the director and 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 Cord's a great uh, communicator. I mean, obviously, a film set is a very you know, if you show up on a film set and have never you know directed or been on the inside as an actor or whatever, it can look like pretty you know it looked ordered, but it can look pretty chaotic. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, there was a process for Cord of understanding where the levers were and where the buttons were, and he managed that really, uh, really beautifully. And uh, yeah, he also is a, is a wonderful leader. And mm. that, at the end of the day, is, is, is what directing is about, too. And so we all kind of, uh, we all gathered uh, around and, and, you know, you know followed, uh, followed him down this path and tried to to do our part here and there to, uh, you know, to keep the, you know, the ship uh, straight. And at the end of the day, um, yeah, we had a great time. I think <laughs> the, the marker for me on a, on a film set as to how the process is going is how the crew works. Mm. And they were so baked in, they were so committed to, to this story and to, and to cord and to the work that they were doing, that it became really clear that we could be onto something special because you could you can just sense when people are working on a set when they are doing it with a little extra mm. amount of pride, and when they're taking you know and they're taking care with the smallest of details. They generally do, but you can tell that it's it's, a, it's amped up a little bit more. As you go on and as they begin to really buy into um, the, the, the film as we're making it. And I, and I felt that, you know, when yeah. you're doing, when you're doing a scene, you know, it's generally quiet on sets, but it becomes when you're on the right path, it becomes just a, you know, just a few percentages quieter. And I sense that, and that, you know, that, that had to do with the work that all of us were doing, but it also had to do with, with Cord's leadership. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. So now, David, we're going to hear your conversation with Charles Milton about May, December. And this is another movie that, like Chris in American Fiction, you saw May, December early and have really been talking it up ever since then. And Charles Milton is so exciting because he's such a discovery in the movie. He's with Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman, who are both actresses we know to expect a lot from. Uh, but he really steps up to the plate. And I'm imagining he uh, had a lot to share about what it took to step up in that way. Yeah, it's amazing the way that the movie is structured and because you have these two unbelievable actresses and Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman, you know, completely owning this movie. But really subtly, the point of view starts to shift and, and he kind of ends up running away with it a little bit. And you need an actor who can chart that uh, in a really specific way. And he does it so brilliantly. Um, so really, my initial questions for him were just about like, kind of finding his way into that and f mm -hmm. understanding how much a movie like this would come to uh, rely on him in a lot of ways. 
It's so exciting every award season when kind of like a slow build comes behind someone you don't necessarily know that much about. And, you know, I think of Cody Smith McPhee and Power of the Dog a couple years ago where it's like, you think you know this guy, but you really don't know him. And, you know, I think his run through award season is really only beginning as more and more people get to see this. And he's in that supporting actor category with some heavy hitters. Yeah, he's just generating a ton of buzz, uh, and rightly so. I, I think since this movie premiered in Cannes, uh, where the movie did not have distribution, we were pre-actor strike, so the cast was there with Todd Haynes. Um, more people keep finding it, and it does feel like the embrace for it keeps getting wider, and that's especially good news for him, because he is the uh, of the cast, the Discovery. Of course, he was on Riverdale for many years, so some people don't love the use of Discovery when describing Charles Melton, which I understand. <laughs> this is, this is, however, a very, uh, this is a step up, you know, it's a, it's a major role and he completely uh, delivers. Um, so yeah, I think the fact that he's very firmly in that conversation for Best Supporting Actor, that alone is a real testament to how good he is because, you know, that's a category with a lot of big names, former nominees, and he's right in there with them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's hear your conversation with the star of May, December, Charles Melton. Charles Melton, welcome to Little Gold Men uh, to talk about your exciting performance in May, December. How's it going? It's going pretty well. I'm happy to be here. We're we're very happy to have you. Um, we're really happy to talk about this movie too, and uh, what you and, and your co-stars do in it. Let's start at the beginning, though. Can you talk a little bit about how you you got involved here? Yeah. So it was the summer of last year, 2022. I got a self-tape request from my team, and I saw that it was May-December, directed by Todd Haynes, starring Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore, and my heart dropped with excitement and then just kind of, uh, you know, led to me self-taping for like the next five days. I spent like six hours every day just trying to get that one tape, wow. completely exhausting myself. And it kind of felt like that was the start of like the journey of preparation because I felt immediately connected to the story of Joe and kind of what he represented and just the complexity that he had and just staying with that for almost six weeks before I found out that I booked the role. It was one oh, wow. self-tape. Yeah, then it went to, you know, like a week later, I got notes from my team saying, these are the notes from Todd Haynes. And I was like, <laughs> no, no way. And then I sent in another self-tape and then I uh, flew out to New York City a week later to do a chemistry read. Um, or a few weeks later to do a chemistry read with Julie and Todd in person. And um, I remember standing outside the casting door and uh, it was like lights were coming through the cracks of the door outside. And I heard them talking about the scene and how it was going to work. And my heart was beating out of my chest. And then I walked in and the next thing I knew, I was walking out with Laura Rosenthal, the casting director. Like, what just happened? And then it was about a week before I found out I booked it, which was really cool. That is quite a process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty intense. Had you ever, I mean, just with the initial self-tape experience, had you ever done something that intensive to go out for a role, essentially? I always liked 
to try to, but you know, Sammy, our writer, I mean, it, 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 there is so much room, so much in between the text to like really explore this character. And I remember while self-taping, I'm like, this is either really bad or <laughs> maybe it's okay. I don't know, you know, yeah. but I, I've never had really the chance to dive in like that before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you maybe felt yourself taking a bit of a risk, a bit of a swing, given 100%. just what the role required. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. So at that point, you know, when you're when you're thinking about this character, and and there's so much to get into with him, like, what are those early things that you're you're trying out, you're figuring out? Because the script is so rich, as you say, and you're also on your own with it. Yeah, and you have limitless possibilities to how you do it yeah a lot of you know i i have a couple of coaches that i work with one for script analysis and another coach where we really just like dive into the minutia of like the emotions and everything and it's never there's never really any line readings or any like anything like that it's more of just like this holistic conversation about who this person is right and there's just this sense of loneliness and this repression that I really was drawn to with Joe. And then it really had me kind of go deep into, you know, like an act, any, any actor when it comes to like a character, you come with it with empathy and like mm-hmm. you bring bits and pieces of your own experience and humanity and the humanity around you to like really allow you to inform whatever choices you make and, Something that I was thinking about was this internalized kind of weight, this kind of tragedy in a way that Joe had. And it made me think about, hmm, was there ever a time in my life where I felt this just intense sense of responsibility and like stepping up to the plate, right? And showing up and it made me think about my dad, who I loved dearly and I wouldn't change anything. I grew up an army brat. My my mom's Korean. My father met her in Korea. My dad served 20 plus years while I was growing, uh, you know, 20 plus Mm -hmm. years. And I remember we were stationed in Illesheim, Germany, this military base. And I was 11 years old. And my dad sat me down the night before he left just talking about integrity and honor and just like how I need to take care of my two younger sisters mm-hmm. and my Jack, our Jack Russell Terrier Diamond Jack was going to be by my side and how I need to take care of my mom and like show up for them and be a good big brother and a good son. And this was the night before he left to go to the desert storm for a year. Wow. And, you know, when you're a kid and you're that young and your hero's giving you, you know, this speech and really asking you to step up to the plate, you, you know, you're just excited. You're like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. You'll put on that shoe that's a little too big for you at first that you'll eventually grow into. And I kind of just drew that parallel, though the circumstance with the character Joe's completely different into Mm -hmm. just understanding, you know, Joe and kind of like allowing that to inform certain choices and thinking about how that would 
you know, beyond that, the different things that Joe carries internally, how that would look externally when it comes to like the physicality or Mm -hmm. how he looked more so really how he felt. I think I I told you this before, but to me, he walks like in in the movie, like an old man and a child at the same time is the way you do it. And it's so specific. And I know this is already something you're getting asked about a lot is, is how you found that. So I find that personal part of it really fascinating. Did you have a sense that that was kind of coming almost naturally to you, especially as you got into filming? Yeah, I think it kind of started a little bit before then because, you know, I was thinking a lot about repression and just Mm -hmm. not so much just the feeling, but how that would manifest through the body, how you can communicate so much by so little. You know, if you see someone in the corner kind of with their shoulders hunched and, you know, kind of like walking around and kind of keeping to themselves and not really taking up so much space, you kind of feel some sort of sympathy for them. You feel kind of bad for them, you know, so... You know, I, I loved just exploring the physicality, which came from just all the internal work. But like, really, how does this this adolescence that was in a way kind of tainted this uh, arrested development, how does that live in the body and how does that feel? And, you know, Joe doesn't take up too much space. Everything comes before him, mm-hmm. you know, his, his kids, his wife, his work and... Just kind of, you know, even his his voice, you know, like certain technical things I would think about is for me, I can be really animated, like as we're seeing right now talking, like <laughs> I move my mouth a lot, you see my teeth a lot, you know, but yeah. Joe's mouth doesn't move that much because it's kind of almost like this restriction Yes, that kind of stays up here, like a little bit above, you know, the collarbone and from the chin down, just like the throat area, the mm-hmm. neck area. And just how he, uh, it just really kind of stems from, you know, I'm like yeah. banging my stomach. <laughs> like kind of like That's what that sound here. is, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the exciting thing about this movie to me is, is you have three, I mean, a whole ensemble, but three lead actors really making choices like that and you get to see them and it's exciting. And, and obviously with Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore, viewers have maybe gotten to observe that in them more in the past. This for you, this is uh, your first time in a movie like this. Yes. Um, so what was it like, you know, knowing you're in a space where you can make these choices that you're talking about and have this really deep, thorough psychology of the character and then have these two other actresses that you're kind of going between because your character sort of in the middle between them, and we're just watching them do what they do. <laughs> One of the greatest gifts in yeah. the world, you know? You know, Natalie and Julie, ma- they're masters at their craft. Legends, icons, right? They, they, they kind of carry, you know, this excellence that just elevates everything and everyone around them. Like, if you think about the biggest superstar on the planet, that's an athlete, times that by two. Mm-hmm. That's Natalie and Julie. Just everyone becomes better just because mm-hmm. you're in their sphere, right? And beyond that, they're incredibly humans. They're so great. They're so mm. silly. And I felt very safe to just collaborate with them. And really, Todd, 
David taught, like, he really encouraged me to just, like, really, like, lean into my instincts because, you know, this was the first experience that I've had. And it's, it's, you know, a little intimidating, a little nerve-wracking. And for a director like Todd Haynes to just, you know, say, Charles, I just trust in your instincts, you know? And to really just, like, let it go when we got on set was incredible and you know there, there there's that part of me that's on set and i'm like this is natalie portman and julian moore like i want to watch everything they do mm-hmm. but then i was like no charles like you got to do your job you know but it was yeah. when we would block the scenes where i would have a few moments where it was very emotional in the sense of like i can't believe i'm like this scene just kind of turned into what it turned into because this mm-hmm. was completely you know, my thought going in was like, okay, this is how it's going to, I'm sure this is what's going to happen. But things would just evolve and just change on the fly, which was under Todd's vision, which was really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. In those in those moments with the, the two of them, is there anything you particularly picked up about the way they work, uh, the way they move through a movie like this that, that you found helpful or, or just interesting? So much. Uh, they, they, there's just, you know, being on set with them, I think just kind of, we had 23 days to film the scene. So it was like every minute mattered, you know? Yeah. And we did hang out offset. And, you know, it was like a very kind of close, tight knit family for those 23 days. But I learned so much, man. I mean, really letting go of whatever idea I have about a scene early mm-hmm. on and just being open to whatever that process is like when we get on set and how, you know, just we all trusted in Todd, you know, Mm -hmm. and to see, you know, Julie, you know, for her character, she, um, you know, flower arrangements, she was taking Mm -hmm. those classes, she was taking baking classes, like learning just like, they're very technical as yeah. far as like their preparation where it's so fine tuned. And then that's just a part of them putting everything together. And when we would do the scene, it was just like phew, next level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I believe it. I'm like in awe <laughs> talking about this. I can't believe I'm, you know, I'm talking about them. Yeah. It's pretty great. Uh, I can believe it. Having watched the movie, I can, <laughs> you're, you're right there, Charles. I promise. <laughs> oh, it's so sweet, David. What about for you in terms of that kind of technical preparation? I know you've talked about um, some some weight gain, say, for the part to match the character. Like, on a really practical, like, day-to-day level, what did that kind of work look like, for instance? Yeah. Uh, I just watched films. Like, I just digested so many films. Like, Todd had a list going around with, you know, The Graduate, Persona, Manhattan, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, mm-hmm. and... You know, just, you know, three women, just so many different films and really watching performances that I was inspired by to like kind of help inform the process. Like I, I kept on going back to Brokeback Mountain and what Heath Ledger did in that performance, you know, completely different experience than, than what Joe did, but he has this repression, like this internal grit that like really just what he did really inspired me and then just watching. Juan Carwise in the mood for love, Tony Leung, who he does so much with without saying anything at all. And there's this pathos and just 
kind of getting to a place where I was so comfortable in my own body to really then let go. You know, a lot of walks, a lot of meditation, a lot of acupuncture. Yeah. Therapy, you know, all the good <laughs> stuff. The other element I wanted to ask you about a little bit was was fame. You know, in in this mm-hmm. in this film, Joe and Gracie are leading very different kinds of public lives mm-hmm. <laughs> from an actor, um, but they still have this public private division uh, that's mm-hmm. I think really important to the way we understand them. Uh, and of course, you are. This is not your first role. Uh, you are on a little show called Riverdale, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. where where you know attention can skyrocket pretty quickly. So, mm-hmm. how did you how did you experience that, and did that inform the way you just thought at all about this character uh, and the way that they move through the world, particularly in a public space? Say, I'm so grateful for Riverdale. I mean, it changed my life. Before mm-hmm. I booked that show, I was walking dogs, working Chinese takeout. You know. Before we gotta do what we gotta that, do. <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do. Before I started working ten months out of the year for the next seven years, and right. I got so much from that show. I mean, the fact that we filmed so many episodes in you know a short amount of time to where every minute mattered for ten months. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like and working with over a hundred directors really helped just my experience to when I came to work in those twenty three days of filming May December. Oh yeah, I bet. And, you know, when you talk about, like, the just, like, the notoriety that was gained from being on the show, I think, you know, I think about Joe, right? Joe being a part of this, this you know, tabloid culture and this scandal and, like, being told all these things about himself from public opinion. But at the end of the day, in spite of all of that, he would come home to his child, to his newborn son, right? Yeah. Her daughter. And how, what would that look like? Not 10 years down the road, but 20 years down the road. And that's where we find Joe, right? Just kind of like how this culture, this, you know, people probing into his personal life and then just how that kind of created this man and this kind of exterior that he has to really survive through that. So it, if anything, like it just really opened the door just to really think about a lot of different things and the effects of just how you can be affected by being in the limelight in a way, mm-hmm. you know. Did did it affect you at all? Sorry, it's a, it's a natural question. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think I've done a lot of work just to stay grounded. You know, like this morning. I woke up and I played video games. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know, and my mom's here. And uh, what video games were you playing? Uh, the new Mario. Oh, cool. I was playing FIFA. <laughs> FC24. There you go. That's a d- different genre from from what's going on in this house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think there is a certain idea, right? Because it's all perception and what people think of you and just kind of like breaking those walls and you know, am I doing this because I want to prove people wrong and show them something different? Or am I doing this because I want to prove the people that love me right? And because I know I'm capable of doing this. So Mm -hmm. it's like, what is fueling that? Right. And I think just part of just kind of me being in Brian's, you know, words, being my own craftsman is just really focusing on the things that matter in my life that kind of keep me grounded. You know, like I was in Sequoia 
camping for three days with one of my best friends and my my Siberian Husky Nea. You know, just thing kind of like simplifying my life beyond yeah. all of it. Yeah, I you saying that is it's an interesting time to be doing stuff like that, of course, because. You know, we met at one such event uh, where May December is being taken around, and there's there have been quite a few, uh, quite abruptly since the strike ended. Um, how have you found being in these kinds of spaces? Because when a movie like this gets embraced at the level it already is being embraced, it, you know, I, I've talked to actors in the past who the first time they do something like this, it can feel a little overwhelming at times. Like this yeah. feeling of wow, a lot of people are saying a lot of nice things to me, and these are like kind of major people. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, you know, there's a lot of gratitude, right? I mean, who wouldn't want someone saying kind and sweet things about your work, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it kind of comes down, you know, you just gotta, it is overwhelming, it is so positive and great, but uh, I think you kind of like, just kind of take everything's with everything with a little grain of salt, right? Because I think there would be a difference if, like, I have people in my life that I trust and love dearly that would say the same things about mm-hmm. something that I've done where I can trust, even if I don't really believe it in that moment. Having those people in my life really allows me to receive someone I don't know to say certain things, right? Mm-hmm. Because if I don't believe it for myself beforehand, then it's kind of like these empty words where if you uh, live by someone's words, you'll die by them too, in yep. a way. Yeah. So, but it's like, it's just been so great, you know, it, it's really very positive, you know. And I just think about those 23 days of filming with, you know, Todd Haynes, yeah. and it's just incredible. Yeah, and how much can come of that, right? It's yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's like all, it's all like extra stuff, but it's all like, you know, good extra stuff. Yeah, <laughs> no matter how long that extra stuff goes for, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, Riverdale ended earlier this year, and I'm curious, like, obviously being on a show like that for seven years, any kind of show is a big commitment, and mm-hmm. especially one, uh, you know, at that schedule that you're talking about. Yeah. Did you ever feel like maybe this is a box that I'm going to need to break out of, like the teen actor box that is is often referred to? Or or did you always feel comfortable that, you know, I know I can do a lot of different things and I'm going to be able to navigate that uh, when the time comes? Because obviously you did, but I'm just curious what that moment looked like beforehand. Yeah, you know, before I booked Riverdale, I dreamt for an opportunity like that and it came, mm-hmm. right? And the sense of wanting to do more with your work and your work evolving is great. And I think that's amazing, you know? And I don't think I could tell you I'd be here talking with you now for if it wasn't for many things in my life, especially that show, you know, that really helped kind of just shape kind of the way that I would like to work professionally and personally with the relationships that I built, you know, I think people can get upset <laughs> about, you know, yeah. doing something for so long. And it's like, I understand that, but like, what were you doing before? You know, right? there's so many, so many of the people 
uh, that went through Riverdale and they were on Riverdale are just so talented. You know, yeah. I think it's not so much what the people, you know, outside of us think about what we're capable of doing. It's just like, if you believe in that, then you mm -hmm. can do that. So when that opportunity, when the opportunity presents itself, you can show up for it and not live in your own box in your mind in a way, mm -hmm. you know. Did you ever feel that box yourself or? I mean, I'm always, you know, the, the, you know, th the thing about being an army brat is I'm, I always moved every two to four years, right? Yeah. To a different just kind of culture and just, you know, from Texas, Georgia, Kentucky, uh, to Korea five years, Texas two years, Germany four years, to Kansas. I was constantly hitting the refresh button, not changing my identity, but constantly evolving and growing, you know, mm. and assimilating and adapting. And I think that goes, you know, I can apply that into just, you know, maybe how I want to work, right, mm -hmm. with the next thing, not really repeating myself or trying to reestablish myself, but just kind of growing with the hopes and dreams of, you know, maybe being able to work with Todd Haynes, Natalie Portman, yeah. and Julian. Yeah. Moore, you know? Manifested it. Man you, you have go. to manifest. You have to manifest. It sounds, you know, it maybe sounds like a little cliche or anything, but like, or something, but I just, you just constantly have to believe, you know, even if people put you, want to put you in a box or anything, you just kind of seeing outside of that box, right? Yeah. And then, I won't elaborate after this, but like, I remember being a little kid and, uh, you know, being Korean American, like, you know, you remember those little checkbox, like it's like white, uh, Asian Pacific Islander, uh, there's a box for like other, I would, I was like, well, I'm Asian, but I'm not Asian Pacific Islander and I'm white, but you know, they say only check one box, which box do I check? So I always checked other. You know, <laughs> and yeah. then it has like the lines of like you being able to prescribe whatever you are or whatnot. Yep. So I guess the reason why I say that is because, like, you know, we can't put, you know, humanity in a box or a set form of people in a box. And you, uh, Charles Melton, are definitely not in a box. <laughs> <laughs> That does it for this week's show. You can find us at Vanity Fair on social media at VF Awards Insider. I am out there on my own at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield 97. And Chris. Chris Driss. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. The Run Through Evoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am friendly, Butch. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. 
listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.